I grew up with Bob Hope and um, all the USO tours and whatever that he would do. And, and you know, he had this sense of how to deliver a one-liner with the perfect look and the perfect timing. Uh, but then in 1978, I became familiar with Mork and Mindy and Robin Williams. And uh, I watched that because I have to practice to speak out loud. This guy just can't stop. And I kept watching him, and I, 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 would, I would go, how does somebody have that gift? And how do you take out the batteries? Uh, and he can just go on and on and on. We found out that on August 11th, when he took his life, 19, uh, 2014, that he was suffering from a debilitative form of um, uh, dementia. And uh, though his wife says he did not take his life out of depression, uh, I'll leave the courts to decide that. My, my guess is there's some insurance money involved. But um, I... I, I how do you lose a wacky mind like that who can be so improvisational, who can just stand up and begin to do it? And, 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 and how does somebody who brings such joy to so many people and makes them laugh, how does somebody himself get depressed? Here at Bergen Park Church, we're in a series, and it's intermittent. I'll do two weeks now, and then you go, oh, that's enough. And then I'll do two weeks later on. I don't want to know anything more about fears. But it's dealing with the fears that we have in life. And when I'm talking about fears, I'm not talking about fear of birds. I'm not talking about fear of heights. I'm not talking about fear of the dark, or for some people I know, fear of mice, especially dead mice in a trap. I'm talking... <laughs> I'm talking about the visceral fears, the ones that are embedded in us and controlling, not ones that show up from time to time, but the ones that are affecting our daily life and the decisions we make of how we're going to live. You can catch up on these online. I think they go way back to uh, uh, probably November before we uh, began our Christmas series. But we've looked at the fear of financial collapse. We've looked at the fear of failure. The fear of isolation and being alone for the rest of your life. And the fear of rejection. Today, Robin Williams points out to us that even those that seem to be the most popular, the most loved, they have a fear of mental breakdown or controlling depression that may even cause them to take their lives. Did you realize that in an international survey that's been taken, um, uh, America listed 14th we would desire of happiest nations. We have all the money we could, well, not that we would desire, but all the money that we need, don't we? And yet we listed 14th under Lebanon, under Mexico. Why don't we immigrate the other way to get happy? <laughs> and, and under Nigeria. They all are a happier people in terms of surveys that are taken. So something is going on inside of us that money does not solve. And depression seems to have a deepening influence on our national health. Let me give you some statistics. You take these away, you think about them, you think if they're true or not. But these are the ones that are listed. They, they, they're from about 2005, so uh, usually they only progress in the next 10 years. But one under five, or one just under one in five, will develop major long-lasting depression 
in a lifetime. If you think about what that means, that is one in five, 20%. That means as I look at this audience, 10 of you probably are doing it now or suffering from it. 30 to 40 have gone through it or will. Uh, For those of you in high school, you have a class of about 30 people. In that class, two will be suffering depression. Every year, and I guess this is from medical records that are accumulated, 17 million adults and 2 million teens report a major depression being suffered. And from my history, I want you to know, I am one of them. Depression is the leading cause of disability that drains uh, the welfare funds from our government. It is the leading um, claim for disability. It is estimated that depression lowers the productivity of the American in the workplace by $55 billion a year. I could have won that last night if I would have won the lotto, or almost, okay? But that's a lot of money. And that prescriptions for antidepressants have soared since 1988 by 400%. And let me just explain what's going on here. Uh, there is an ongoing, in, in the medical and psychiatric world, an ongoing uh, ineffectiveness, they believe, in counseling and, an, and a greater, uh, what they believe, is effectiveness of medications. And so my experience was when I shared with my doctor that, you know, I'm feeling a little down. He goes, well, here, here's your prescription. Go ahead, t- take it out. And I go, I, I, I didn't ask for that. He goes, no, but you'll feel better. And so I took it. Well, because controlling and chronic depression is so real, we need to know as Christians that God who has intricately and, and made us to be a balanced creation, God has plans for us. And God, God is aware of this. And he is not absent when we go through it. We need to see it as a fear not just of unbelievers, that they are afraid that they're going to uh, be uh, controlled by their depression, but it's something for all humans, Christians included. And we need to know that God has some resources with uh, for us to deal with depression in addition to psychiatry and medicine. And understand this, I am never telling anybody to stop your medications. I am not a doctor. But I deal with people all the time and I watch a variety of ways that the doctors don't, uh, they're just not aware of. First of all, understand that there's several causes. Causes for depression, the most often reported is the external circumstances of life. The disasters, the, the uh, downfalls of life, they get us down. But there are others too. And if you go to the Bible, in the book of Job, he gives us some of the insights into the deepest depressions men, uh, that uh, humans have ever, re, uh, have ever reported. And it says in the book of Job, that Job was satanically attacked. That the evil one was involved. More than that, we know that when Paul was talking about what was debilitating him and slowing him down, he did not give the specific reason, but we do know this. He goes, it was a messenger from Satan. He also, maybe because he understood Job better than many of us, he could also say Satan is involved with this. Well, Job, in a matter of just, it seems to be hours, maybe a a, a day or two, he gets all these reports of his possessions being lost. They're all gone. 
One messenger after another keeps saying, everything you've built up, all of your wealth, it's now gone. That is followed by then another messenger coming and saying, all of your family was together for a party, but you and your wife, and they're all gone. They've all died. Then Job's health goes. And he responds by kneeling in the ground, putting ashes on his head. Uh, he gets diseased with his skin. And he's, there he is kneeling in the dust and bemoaning his very existence. He's not suicidal. Like many depressed people are. But he is asking very deep and hard questions about life. We also know that, that depression and especially the the chronic type, has physical and hormonal contributions. And we better be aware of that. So the pill that I was given was mainly a serotonin inhibitor, that if you uh, uh, decrease the amount of serotonin in in your system, uh, the chances are that you will not be as depressed. But we also know that that's not the only answer, that serotonin inhibitors do not... Uh, inhibit the circumstances that you're walking through. Serotonin inhibitors uh, cannot change the series of sorrows or loss or meaning to your life. So when you read Job, you realize that his depression is linked more to uh, uh, the the question of, uh, of his entire worldview, his personal philosophy. When you read Job, you go, Lord, I, I, I've been a good person. This should not be happening to me. He's saying, God, I, I, look at all that I've done. Look at all the good works of my life. I don't deserve this. And then he's saying, God, why haven't you shown up? Why didn't you protect me from this? It's a theological. It's a philosophical it's one of those where his, all the answers that he received in Sunday school didn't work anymore. And if your relationship is still back in the second grade, I, you know, your relationship with God is still back there and you're using all the same answers you used then, I just want you to know uh, this is a great time for you to begin a new uh, means of discovery for your life. Uh, let me share with you a couple instances that unfortunately I've had to deal with. There was a man in my previous church who promised that he would fulfill his vow to his wife. They were both elderly, but he really fulfilled in sickness and in health till death do us part. He, 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 he saw her through a long convalescence, uh, through the, the whole dying process. He got the family together. He, he, uh, he then took the whole family through the entire, uh, funeral and graveside and all of this. And then eight days later, he kills himself. His son came to me and said, this is all my dad lived for. This was his meaning for living. Now, that's a devoted husband. But life is more than that. Another man I know had a progressive debilitating disease. And he said, before it takes away my ability to make my choices or to live out my choices, I'm going to take my own life. And he did. People get to the end. People realize that I just don't foresee a future in which I want to continue to live. Job does not. 
But he asked all the right questions. And there's no better description of a dark night of a soul that many of us may be walking through from time to time. There's no better prose to describe it than what comes out of the heart of this man, Job. Now, I want you to be aware, this is very nuanced. Sometimes the verses will look exactly the same. But these are questions not only that Job is asking, but I've heard some people as they come to me and say, this is what's going on in my life. Uh, uh, they say the same things. Maybe not as, uh, as educated, maybe not as nuanced, but they say these things. And I'm in Job chapter 3 and understand what's happened. He's gone through all these losses, all of his possessions, uh, his health, and all of his family. And then it says, uh, his friends come to him and it says in, in Job chapter 2 verse 13, they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Well done, three friends. I wish you would have kept it up. Now then it says Job uh, steps up and speaks. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said... May the day of my birth perish. And the night it was said, a boy is born. That day, may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. May darkness and deep shadow claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm its light. Where's Robin Williams when you need him? Wow. Have you ever heard words so deeply sorrowful, so deeply uh, uh, resentful of the life that this man has been given? You see, uh, what he's saying is, I wish I never would have been born. It would have been a whole better world if my life never began. This miracle that we call conception and, and gestation and birth, the whole existence of the entire universe, it would be better if mine weren't a part of it. Now, most of us, when we despair, uh, you know, we understand we won't feel this way forever, and probably Job would not either. But what he's saying is every day that I, that I wake up, it's just another opportunity for sadness and grief. You remember um, the character Eeyore, the, the donkey? Eeyore? Okay, you remember that? Uh, in, the, in, the, in the children's book? I've known some Eeyores in my life, and I've, it's been claimed that sometimes I'm an Eeyore, okay? And, and these, purple, these people just are not able to do anything. They can't smile. They can't look at the good side. They go, oh, well, life is hard, but we keep pressing on. These people find it hard to express any joy, but they go on living. However, for a season, you understand that people like this can focus only on their personal pain. And in a review of their lives, they see no good reason for their human existence. It would be better if I never was born. The pain I am suffering is just too deep, too intense. By the way, parents of teenagers, get ready. If they haven't said it yet, one of them probably will, okay? They'll be that sorrowful, that intense. They don't mean it, but it's the best way they can express what's going on. 
The second question he asks is, why did I survive? He says this in verse uh, 3, 11 through 13, I think it is. He says, uh, why, did I not, why did it not perish at birth? In other words, why was I not stillborn? And, and die as I came from the womb. Why were the knees there to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. And I would be asleep at rest, meaning I would be dead. I would have just had a very short existence. <clears throat> so why, why did I survive? What personal reason could there be? What heavenly reason could there be for me to be experiencing what I'm experiencing now? See, parents who lose their children have often said, I would gladly take the place of my lost child. Soldiers who have a comrade take a bullet for them uh, often deal with unmeasurable guilt. Why did I survive? Those criminals who deal honestly with their crimes wonder why they had been spared after the evil that they've done to others. Listen to this one example. Uh, In 1970, Catherine Power led an underground radical group at Brandeis University known as the National Student Strike Force. Now, I was at CU when, at, at, in that year, okay? And you need to know Brandeis and CU were different. We, we all talked about radical things, but all, everybody was drunk when they talked about it there. <clears throat> or high. So they never really meant it. Nothing much happened. But the East Coast and, and Michigan State and, and, and the Midwest, Ohio State, that was radical. And so, uh, the National Student Strike Force, uh, they, um, Um, They break into the National Guard Army nearby and they steal guns for the Black Panther Party. Three days later, they rob a bank in Massachusetts and Catherine is the getaway driver. She has the getaway car and she watches as one of her accomplices guns down a policeman. Within days, all but two of her group are caught and convicted. The other was apprehended five years later, but not yet Catherine. Catherine moves around. She hides her identity. She takes jobs where she can just be there and leave and nobody ask anything about her. She knows that she's on the, you know, the top ten wanted list. Uh, but she's not found. And so finally she moves to Oregon. And she gets a new identity. She develops a new career. She marries and has children. But the guilt doesn't go away. She'll never have a true friendship. The guilt robs her of all joy in life. Even her own family members will never truly know her because they've never heard what she's been through. She doesn't want to put that responsibility on them. So finally, after 20 years of hiding, she turns herself in, pleads guilty to armed robbery and manslaughter, and serves six years in prison is released in 1993. She begins a new life. She returns to school and is now a professor. And in an interview, she states that she is now learning to live with openness and truth rather than shame and hiddenness. Quote, Catherine Power suffers from a depression of guilt, not only because a cop is dead, a human being, a policeman, is dead, but she is the only one who had not been caught. Why did I survive? 
Why did I get away for it, uh, away with this for 20 years? And Job asked the same questions. There are six times in Job chapter 3 where the sentence begins with why, why, why? And he gets no answer. The final one would be even why am I alive today? Not, you know, why did I survive? But if I'm alive and I'm supposed to go on living, what's my purpose? Now, I'm a purpose junkie. You may not be, but I really am. And the, the very worst things that could happen to Job have happened and they continue, but Job remains. He continues to live, but he's asking the question in verses 25 and 26, what is left to live for? He says, what I have feared in verse 25 and 26 has come upon me and what I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. He fears that he'll have a long life, but only one of confusion. Only one of sorrow. Only one where God never answers his questions. And the rest of his life will reflect the season that he is now living in that he must endure. Well, that's Job. This week I was forced to read because I don't like reading depressing people. Um, But I was forced to read several quotes of fairly famous people and how they would describe this dark valley, this shadow that seems to be over them for a long period of time. Let me list some of them. Uh, The uh, author, William Stryon, Dante of the Divine Comedy, Dante's Inferno. He writes of his own depression. Abraham Lincoln in the middle of the Civil War. In the Bible, uh, Moses, he complains to God because he says, the job's too big. I just don't want to get up in the morning and do it. Elijah. Elijah complains to God, I'm the only one left. It's lonely out here being a godly man. Nobody else is here to support me. David. Though you'd see him as a warrior king, one who was heavy into leadership in Psalm 42, verse 3, he says this. My tears have been my food day and night while they continually say to me, where is your God? In a way, just like Job. You see, depression is a human thing. Believers suffer from it too. The great evangelist C.H. Spurgeon once took a whole morning to preach to his congregation what he was going through. The great reformer, Martin Luther, would disappear for weeks to recover from his depression. The Scottish reformer, John Knox, for you Presbyterians, uh, writes about praying that God would end his miserable life. John Bunyan does the same from Pilgrim's Progress. J.B. Phillips um, who, who wrote the, one of the first uh, 20th century, you might say, Bible paraphrases that I still use. He suffered from it. All have lived very productive lives. And you remember them for what they produced, not what they had to walk through. Be encouraged by that. I figure that now it's time to go to this part where we talk about the resources that God has for us when, we, when we're talking about, okay, and again, 
When I'm talking about uh, if you've been prescribed medications, I'm going to say this twice and probably a third time. Don't ever say, my pastor told me to stop taking them. (laughs) Don't ever say that. In fact, your pastor might say, not just keep taking them, but have you thought of seeing a doctor and maybe you should take them? But I also want to go beyond medicine to talk about what we see in Scripture that might help us understand that God has some resources. And um, there's a really good example of someone who's walked through this, and the example is me. So uh, this may be a little too vulnerable for some of you. Some of you might never look at me the same. That's because you've been here for uh, less than three years. And about every three years, I do this. I want you to know what it was like for me. Now, first time I saw a doctor, he said, are you thinking of ending your life? No. I just want to feel better. He goes, okay. Well, then I I think, you know, we can deal with this. And I never did. Uh, I was never thinking of suicide. But here's the resources that really help me and I hope maybe can help you. The first is admission. In Job chapter 7, he says, uh, Job says, Therefore, I will not keep silent. I will speak out in anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Uh, for me, this, this I experienced here at Bergen Park Church in 2003. And this may be a surprise to you, but have, I mean, because I know you've never from, been from a church like this, but have you ever noticed that maybe once in a while churches aren't totally unified and they get a little upset at one another? Well, well, they do. And I went through this, and it wasn't nearly as uh, deep or as, or, or as emotional as the last time. But for some reason, it hit me very deeply. And I, this time, I admitted, Lord, I don't like the way I'm feeling. This happened 10 years ago in my previous church. And at that time, I felt better because I could always blame it on others. And when I blame it on others, I said, there's nothing wrong with me. But this time, Lord, I feel the same way. It's not that serious. How come? How come? I admitted that I had been here before. I didn't like it then, and I don't like it now. And this time, I still did not like it, but I confessed that I needed help. I did not want this despair to continue. Job speaks out to his friends, but as Job speaks out to his friends, we understand that we hear it and God hears it. For me, I could honestly say to the church leaders, if this depression continues, if it controls me, this is not the job for me, and it doesn't help Bergen Park Church. Now, I did not have any ideas of what else I would be going into, but I could not share with the people of Bergen Park Church at that time a confidence in God and a trust in Jesus Christ unless something began to change in me and change soon. So the next thing I did, because again, I I need a plan. I mean, you give me a plan and I will just do fine. Don't, Don't say, here you are, now just go figure it out. No, I come with a plan, then I figure it out. So I got a plan. And I listed a bunch of normal things that most people do. And then because I'm Jim, I had a couple out of the box things. I visited a doctor. He gave me a six month subscription to Wellbutrin. Then he gave me a year subscription to Wellbutrin. I saw a counselor who's, who, who, who practices only for ministers. Guess what? You can't get in. 
But his practice is full. Full. We met. We studied a series of books by famous Christian psychologists together. I decided I needed more than that. So my third method was I read secular books. Most of them were the Tony Robbins type, you know. Uh, you got to, you know, here's six steps to happiness and all this other stuff. I read the Bible's most famous depressed and suicidal characters, as well as Solomon's Ecclesiastes several times. And finally, I approached several friends that I had known for over 20 years, all outside of Bergen Park Church. And I said, you've known me for so long. Did you ever see this in me before? And if so... Speak up. I need help. Barb prayed. And she encouraged me. This process takes over a year in my life. I can still do my job. I'm not struggling to get out of bed in the morning. I'm not waking up in the fetal position. I, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay. But I'm not doing okay. And then I find that maybe what is going on is a redefinition of my life. That I have been in ministry now 30 years, and if I was going to do it for 50 years, then maybe God was bringing about some changes in me. It's time to get out of the second grade, Jim, and find the new answers for this phase of your life. Well, certain things have gone to pot, mainly this, okay? But my physical life, I wasn't, I wasn't doing anything physically. Uh, my exercise, my sleep, I just became more disciplined physically. I decided I wanted to see a bigger church than just Bergen Park Church, so I got involved in missions. And I want to say that when you see me in missions, I love to contribute, but sometimes missions help me more than I help the mission. And I'm Honest enough to say that. So I got involved in missions. And I do, and I started to do things that would make me laugh, that would make me escape, that would make me have fun again. I married into fun. So that, that was really helpful. I began to redefine my life's purpose as I was doing this research. And identified the important relationships of my life that I wish to nurture in the future. And each of these began to help me in some, in some way, but one or two helped me greatly. You see, when we read David and what he was saying, when he did his research, what he's saying is, I think as I go through the end of this, why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to say, I love what I do. I love ministry. I, I want to be praising God for each day that I'm given. And each of these help me in some way. Restore that joy that David says I know is going to come. And the final was a refocus. If you look at the end of Job, God appears to Job. And it's not that God explains everything. But he just says, I'm here. And guess what, Job? Where were you when I created the universe? Where were you when I set the boundaries of the world? Job, what were you doing when I did this whole creation process? Could you have invented a hippopotamus in a gazillion years? How about the camel? That's not a horse that a committee put together. 
I wanted the camel. And so he goes through all of these things. And Job comes to the end and he says, Lord, I, I don't, you haven't answered my questions. But I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. And then just a few verses later. My ears have heard you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. When he's saying that, he says, Lord, I am sorry for my attitude. I'm sorry that it, that it just continues this way. God had not abandoned Job. And for the four to six that may be wondering about yourselves, God is not abandoning you. For me, I found out that God was using this time to strengthen my trust in him and my purpose in serving him. Took about a year. I learned his kingdom will always be bigger than a local church. But he has put me in this local church. I learned that God has plans for me. And they may not be always easy to accomplish. And I, I, I don't, I'm not one of those, give me the toughest job you got in the world. That's what I want to do. I'm not like that. So they won't be easy to accomplish, but they're worthy. And like Paul with his thorn in the flesh, he could, he could say, you know, in my weakness, that allows God to be strong, to be strong in my life. And so about every two or three years, for some reason, some men in the community come up to me and, and this, this is honest, it does happen. They come up to me and they say, Jim, I'm, I'm going through a tough time right now. And I said, like what? And they sort of begin to share. And I'm uncomfortable because he's a man, you know, we don't do that. <laughs> but it allows me to put my hand on his shoulder and look him in the eye and say, um, maybe I can help. Not, oh, I know exactly what you're going through, because I don't. But just, maybe I can help. And there's two sorts of people in here. Those that suffer depression, and those that know those who will and do. And maybe you can help. And for those of you who do, um, I'm going to give you one thing your doctor won't say, but Carl Menninger, the famous psychiatrist, did say. Get out of my office, go across the street, and help someone. Let's pray. Will we always suffer from this, God? And the answer for most, not all, but for most, is no. You will praise God again. But in the midst of it, will you allow God's resources, as well as all the other resources? Science has not stunned God. He's been waiting for us to learn about it since creation. 
So with all the other medical and psychological resources, will you use some that God is really, really good at? First of all, it's not somebody else's fault, but you need help. Will you research it? God's given you a great mind. And he wants you to use it so you won't be stuck in this place. And like Job, are you willing to refocus? Understanding that part of his purpose of this disability that you are suffering is so that maybe you can look someone in the eye and say, can I help? Father, I thank you. Don't ever let me go through this again. But thank you for it. And I pray that you will have enriched my life. I also want to pray that those who've been through it, who have this similar perspective, enrich their lives. Make them more useful to you. Better instruments of your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name and God's people said.